Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Have you ever been in a position where you are stalling for time? Right? Maybe you're at a, uh, there's a birthday party and you're responsible. It's a surprise birthday party and you're responsible for uh, keeping someone in one location and then bringing them to the next location on time. And in that process, you're stalling for time. Uh, maybe you show up early to church too early. And before church starts, instead of coming in, you scroll through your phone to make sure you've seen all that social media has for you to offer. Before you come in the service, right, you're just stalling for time. Uh, those of you students, you're called on in class to answer a question. And instead of answering it quickly and confidently, you just start a sentence hoping you find the answer along the way. And you're stalling for time. Or maybe you're a pastor on a Sunday morning and you're looking at your notes and you're not sure whether or not you should continue, so you just stall for time. Um, maybe you're a parent and you have two children and you ask whether or not they did something because of what they did or did not do. And one of them begins to just stall. On the surface, as we jump into Acts chapter 7, it appears this is what is happening with Stephen. We're going to read his defense. Yes, our last week uh, we heard some accusations against Stephen. Um, and it can appear that as we read through Acts chapter 7 together, it appears that he's stalling for time. Because he starts at the beginning, like the very beginning of Israel's history. Stephen is one of the church's earliest leaders, and he's been charged for blaspheming God. So he's charged with blaspheming God. He's charged with blaspheming Moses, who is an important early leader, of course, in Israel's history. He's accused of blaspheming the Torah, which is these five books of the Bible that the law is uh, that the law contains, and it's the history of Israel. It's what these Jewish people hold near and dear to their heart. He's accused of blaspheming the temple, this temple that represented the very presence of God. And when they went there, they knew they could sacrifice, they could worship, they would entering the very presence of God. And they are accusing Stephen on blaspheming against all these things. And so right on the heels of these accusations, this is what we see in Acts chapter 7 and verse 1. The high priest said, are these things so? So Stephen gets in trouble and he begins this defense. Now, let me give you a disclaimer on today's text. On the surface, it can seem a little mundane. We're going to attempt to go through 50 verses this morning, which is a lot. And in it, we see Stephen describing the history of Israel. How many of you are history buffs? Let's see your hands. For you, this will be very interesting. He chronicles the history. Man, for the rest of you, just stay with me. But for you history buffs, this is very interesting because he starts at the beginning of their faith and he walks them through to the present time. And keep in mind, as we study Acts chapter 7, it's really important for us to kind of set our eyes on what the purpose of the book of Acts is. Part of the reason we go through the book of the Bible like this is because when you see the overall purpose, these isolated stories that make up the narrative really point back to why the book is preserved for us today. So Purpose of Acts tells us how God directs the expansion of his kingdom throughout the world 
through a spirit-empowered church despite internal obstacles and external opposition. So you remember back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus told them, you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Everyone say witnesses. witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Where are they right now in Acts? They're in Jerusalem. So this is the fulfillment of that portion of this command from Jesus. But he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What we're seeing, what we're about to read is a seminal event that leads to the early church and its followers going from Jerusalem outward. So as we get started, we examine Stephen's defense. He's accused of blaspheming God, Moses, the Torah, and the temple. Well, Stephen did no such thing. Stephen preached Jesus. Jesus was and is the answer. This is what he's preaching. In fact, the entire Old Testament points to Jesus and the cross and God's plan of redeeming us to himself. And so it's interesting, as we read through chapter 7, we're going to find Jesus in the Old Testament. But before we do that, we examine the text. And so we're in Acts chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest said, are these things so? Now, this high priest is likely Caiaphas. It's the same high priest who presided over the trial of Jesus. And so the high priest invited Stephen to explain himself in light of these accusations. In fact, as we go verse by verse through Stephen's defense, you can make an argument that Stephen goes book by book through the Old Testament because every book in the Old Testament, nearly every book, I should say, is represented in these 50 verses. He gives us a panorama of the Old Testament. Uh, we start in verse 2. It says this, Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to, what's that next word? Our father. We're going to read the verse in a second, but Stephen, if you're following in our notes, Stephen began the defense of his faith by starting with the common ground they shared. He defended his faith by first starting with common ground. Let's look at that verse again. Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into a land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. We're going to unpack these verses in a moment, but again, Stephen began the defense of his faith by starting with the common ground they shared. While we're here, in my estimation, this is the most effective way to share your faith and the, and the reason for the hope that lies within you by starting with common ground. In fact, if you look at the way Jesus interacted with people in the New Testament, you'll find that most of the time he would start with the things they had in common or he started with their immediate need. For instance, when people were sick, he started with their disease. When he met Peter, he went into a boat and he went fishing with Peter, as it were. 
When he met Matthew, he went and ate in Matthew's house first. When they were at the wedding and they said, Lord, we have run out of wine, help us out. He didn't say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't say repent. He addressed the issue. He gave them more wine. Uh, The woman at the well, he asked for water. They were both in need for water. I believe that the defense of our faith should begin with what we share in common. Church, I've never really had a meaningful conversation with someone by starting the conversation by telling them how they are wrong. (laughs) It usually does not set up for a good relationship. I've really never had a meaningful conversation or a friendship by being mean to them. I've never had a meaningful conversation about Jesus by yelling at someone. I've never had a meaningful conversation about my faith by showing or shouting, I should say, at people. I think it's important for us to recognize that all throughout Scripture, we're giving a pattern for how people defend their faith. And here, Stephen began the defense of his faith by starting with the common ground they share. He said, Daniel, how do you share your faith with people you disagree with? I start with what we have in common. If I have a conversation with someone that disagrees with me politically, um, I start with what we have in common. I hope, I hope they love people. So I start there. Uh, I hope they they care about their neighbors, so we start there. By the way, just to be clear, I've never had a conversation about politics that directly led me closer to Jesus. And I'm telling you that as your pastor. I've never had a conversation about politics that led me closer to Jesus. Uh, You said, Daniel, what if someone's just living a different lifestyle than you? Well, I I, I start with what we have in common. For one, I'm a human, so I can empathize and sympathize. Um, This idea that we have to um, be mean, vindictive, unkind, ungracious, everything opposite of the fruit of the Spirit in order for us to share our faith, I do not think is Christ-like. Now, we will see next week in verse 51, Stephen gets with it. Stephen does not avoid the truth. But what I'm asking you to consider is he doesn't start by, uh, by, by yelling or uh, by criticizing or anything. He starts with common ground. He says, man, brothers and, uh, he says, fathers and, and, and brothers. He talks about them as our Uh, faith. Uh, There's a relationship there he establishes. In fact, when he quotes from the Torah, he's actually building this common ground that both of them share, and he uses it exclusively in his text. And as much as this is a defense, Stephen isn't interested in defending himself. He's simply setting up this common ground so that he can get to a place where he proclaims the truth about who Jesus is. Now, this type of storytelling was on purpose because this is how they pass stories from generation to generation. There was the oral tradition of sharing stories. uh, Stephen is sharing the 
old order of things as it was understood. And as he does, he's asking them to consider that with Jesus and Jesus entering the scene, that some of these old things are being passed away and there's a new order that's coming, especially when it comes to the temple. Uh, The temple was cherished by the Jews, but it was destined to pass away. So Stephen emphasizes a truth about who God is. The very nature of God prevents himself from confining himself to one place. You see, God never confined himself to one place like the temple. This was important for the Jewish people to understand. At the very beginning, Stephen emphasizes that the God of glory appeared to Abraham before Abraham came to the promised land. There was no temple there. There was no promised land yet. And yet God's presence was with Abraham. What he's trying to let the people understand is this. Outside of the temple of God, within the temple of God, God's presence is possible. It does not, God's presence isn't confined to one place or one location. And for so long, the Jewish people identified the temple of God as the only place where you could have the presence of God. And because of that, they started elevating the temple to be actually more important than who God was. And so he's saying, man, the, 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 the presence of God, the very nature of God prevents himself from confining himself to one place. Verse 6, God spoke to this effect. He's continuing his defense. That his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. He's talking about the enslavery of Israel here. To whom? To Egypt. So the promise that Uh, They would have their own land, would not come easy or be light for Abram or his descendants. They would be enslaved. They would be afflicted for 400 years. Verse 7, he says this, But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. So God promised to judge Egypt and put Israel, uh, that put Israel into bondage. Verse 8, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Stephen insisted here that God knew what was best and how to take care of his people. This circumcision was uh, the way that God's people were identified uh, in Abraham's day. We come to verse 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph... So he's talked about Abraham, who would be well-recognized in their faith, and now he's moving on to another forefather of the faith, Joseph. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph. Why were they jealous of Joseph? Because he was daddy's favorite, right? He was given a, a coat of many colors when the others were not. And, uh, and Joseph had it coming a little bit. I mean, he shared these dreams where... Uh, the, the brothers would bow down to him and all of these different things, and you can kind of interpret that one or two ways. But they were jealous of him. They sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Question, did the Torah exist in Joseph's day? Did the temple exist in Torah's day? Right? He's explaining to them that outside the Torah, outside the temple, God's presence was still possible. Uh, we read on about the story of Joseph, verse 10. They rescued him out of, God rescued him out of all his afflictions, gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So Joseph, you, we see the story of Joseph where he gets promoted all throughout his life. Verse 11, 
There came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our, fo- and our fathers could find no food. So Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt. He sent out uh, our fathers on their first visit. So these are Joseph's brothers returning back to him, not knowing that Joseph is the one in charge. Verse 13, and on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Verse 15, and Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. So Stephen is recounting the details of Abraham, of Jacob, and Joseph, and how close they were to God, even though there was no Torah, even though there was no temple. He was explaining to them that Joseph nor Jacob did not need to go to the temple to be close to God, because the temple didn't exist. God was with them this whole time. We continue reading the, the history lesson here, as it were. Verse 17 As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, so the promise is this new land, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until they rose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. So some time has passed. Verse 19, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. So... Pharaoh makes a decree that any Hebrew-born male children are to be eliminated. Verse 20, and at this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. Verse 21, and when he was exposed, when people knew that there was a Hebrew male child born, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. And brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and his deeds. Just a quick aside. It was very interesting when I was reading about Moses. According to other historical literature. um, Because Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. Moses was brilliant. We get the impression that Moses. um, Because he wasn't eloquent. Wasn't smart. Uh, But apparently he knew all about algebra, he knew about chemistry, he knew about the sciences, he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Very interesting. Verse 23, keep reading. When he was 40 years old, it came unto his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. What that means is he realized what his heritage was. He saw some wrongdoing being happened. Uh, Verse 24, seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. How do we think that went over with the Egyptians? Yeah, not good. Verse 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, And tried to reconcile with them, saying, Men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and said, Who do you think you are? What made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
Moses thought he was doing them a favor. Moses thought that by virtue of his, uh, his exercising justice in the moment that the Hebrew brothers would appreciate what Moses did and that Moses was rejected by his own. Moses offered deliverance to Israel. He was rejected and reje- rejected with spite. And the Hebrews denied that he had any right to be a ruler or judge over them. So Stephen's message is plain. You've rejected Jesus Do you remember when you rejected Moses? You see what he's doing here? He's connecting all of the dots of Israel's history. You rejected Jesus who was just like Moses yet greater than him. Do you remember when you denied Moses himself and you deny that Jesus has any right to be a ruler and judge over you just like you did with Moses? Verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. So he's fast forward some things. Moses has now uh, been kicked out of Egypt. He's not wanted by Pharaoh's home, and he's not wanted by the Hebrews. He is homeless, and he's without a country. So he's in the wilderness. He sees this flame of fire in a bush, verse 31, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I think he'd be more amazed at this point. Verse 32, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. God says to him, I've seen the, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them, and now come, I'm sending you to Egypt. So this picture of Moses and the burning bush and God's glory and, and, and him speaking to Moses, uh, it's a lesson that God, his glory, and his work were not confined to the temple. Stephen is articulating the Israel's the history of Israel in a way that these uh, high priests that these Jewish people have not considered before. He's articulating the history in a way that points them to the fact that God's presence cannot be confined to a temple. God's glory can't be confined to a temple. We read on verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Verse 36, This man led them out. The one you said, Who do you think you are? You can't lead us. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So even though Israel had rejected Moses and his leadership, God appointed Moses with unmistakable signs and wonders. And though Israel rejected Moses as what might be called uh, this, this opportunity to be delivered, he still remained God's chosen deliverer for Israel. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Who's Moses talking about, verse 37? Oh, this is a powerful, powerful thing. So before the Torah was written, before the temple was ever established, Moses himself is saying, man, there's going to come a person after me, a prophet from your own brothers. God will raise up this person. 
so before the Torah, before the temple, Moses is prophetically speaking about Jesus coming. Look at verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. This is who Moses was. He spoke to God. Uh, he received living oracles, God's word, and he gave them to us. Verse 39, and our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. And they said to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know, we don't know what has become of him. Stephen is reminding the, his, the, the Israelites that even in their history, when God's chosen messenger was crystal clear to them, they still doubted him. They didn't want Moses. Uh, you read through the Exodus through Deuteronomy, you can skip some of Numbers and Leviticus if you want, but if, um, when you read through those, those books, I mean, there's portions of Scripture where the Israelites are like, oh my goodness, Moses, can we just go back home? Can we go back to Egypt? Man, they gave us cucumbers there. They gave us leeks there. They gave us all these kind of vegetables. And here we are, free from them. And all we, we just want to go back. Moses leaves for a few moments. And, and the guys get an idea. And they say, man, we don't have Moses. We haven't heard from God in like four minutes. Maybe we should bring all of the jewelry we took from Egypt. And let's build something. Let's build a calf. So we at least have something to worship and Moses comes down off the mountain and he sees the calf and he goes to Aaron what happened and Aaron goes something happened we didn't do this this calf came out of the furnace on its own <laughs> like like Stephen is reminding them of their own history that even Moses you turned your face against Moses you rejected him of all people. Verse 41. Oh, I skipped ahead. My bad. Verse 41. They made a calf in those days. Spoiler alert. I already told you that part. Offered a sacrifice to his idol. They were rejoicing in the work of their own hands. It's interesting because they rejected Moses just like they're now rejecting Jesus. And when ancient Israel rejected Moses and God's work through him, they replaced him with their own man-made religion. That's what the calf symbolizes. So Stephen is saying, this calf that we now laugh at, that we uh, look back on, on perhaps a sadness, but also a little bit of sense of humor, this calf, you're doing the same thing with the temple. You're doing the same thing with these other traditions. Verse 42, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of prophets, did you bring me here to slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. You see, in their rejection of Moses and the God who sent them, Israel turned instead to their own idols, bringing themselves to judgment. So this is Stephen's defense. God said, in effect, if this is what you really want, this is what you get, I will turn you over to these idols. And that's how they entered into Babylon, into captivity. It's an interesting question for us because it makes us ask of ourselves, what does it cost us to reject God? 
You see, because in our lives, the, the more we reject the Holy Spirit's leading, the more we reject uh, God's clear, clear word in our lives, the more we reject, the more we're in danger of putting ourselves in a position where we start embracing what the enemy of our soul would really want us to embrace. What does it cost us to reject him? We continue. Look at that. We're already on verse 44. Verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him, saying, according to the pattern that he had seen. Verse 45. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. You see how he's going through history. We're all the way to David now. Verse 46, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Verse 47, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. I love our church. Um, I love our church building. I love how beautiful it is. I love the stained glass windows. Uh, I love walking uh, through the church uh, when there's no one else here, and I'll just I'll just pray over the seats. And if you normally sit in the same seat, you were prayed for this week because I just kind of walk through them. And and those of you who jump around, I try to pray for you. But if you just pick the same seat, it'd be easier for me. Uh, but I'll just walk through and I'll, I'll walk the stage and I'll pray for the musicians that are playing that week. And uh, when we have a baptism, I'll, pr- I'll walk in the baptistry if it's not filled with water and I'll pray for them. Um, uh, I'll walk the halls and, and I'll pray for all the different areas of our ministry that are behind the scenes. And I'll pray at each of the communion places for when we take communion that that part is meaningful and special. Um, I'll walk through our kids area. And I'll just pray for the workers that week. And there's a little schedule of who's working that week. And so I'll pray for those names. Um, I'll go to the office and I'll start praying for people. I'll pray. If Darren doesn't lock his doors, I'll pray for the youth. But if he locks his doors, they're on their own that week. Um, And I'll come down and I'll go downstairs and I'll pray for all the stuff that happens downstairs during the week. And then sometimes, I don't often do it. I, I usually forget by the time I leave. But sometimes I'll walk the parking lot and I'll just pray for the spaces on Sunday. I really love our building. I love what we have here. This does not represent where God's presence solely lies. Stephen is trying to get them to understand that we are the temple of God. Man, so when we get to Paul in Corinthians, and I don't have the verse listed, but when Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of God? What he's explaining to them is everything that started from Abraham to Jacob to Joseph to, uh, to the, uh, David and, and Joshua and all of these characters that we have. And it led to Solomon building this temple. And oh my goodness, they waited for generations for the temple of God, this place. All of that expense, if you read through when Solomon built that temple, man, um, no expense was spared. spared. There was uh, materials from, the very best of materials from all over the known world were brought for this temple. And you could read through all the details and how how much gold was used, how much silver, how uh, how much of the trees were cut down, how much all of that just to build the temple. All of the effort, all of the thought that went into it, and yet we now represent the temple of God. 
So as beautiful as Solomon's temple was, as sacred as Solomon's temple is, what Stephen is trying to get them to understand, we now are the temple of God. Verse 49, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Stephen's point was that the presence of the tabernacle or the temple did not keep them from rejecting God and his special messengers. Because in doing so, they tried to confine God within the temple. Yet church, God is too big to fit in any building that we could make. But on a more subtle level, how many of us do the very same thing with church? In other words, the only place you meet God is at church. The only time you open your scriptures is at church. The only time you have a meaningful moment of worship is at church. The only time you have a meaningful moment of prayer, maybe, is is at church. And as far as they were concerned, they began to live as if God was absent from the rest of their lives. In the midst of, in the minds and lives of us some today, man, let me try to say that again. In the minds and lives of some of us today, God might as well only live at church. Because we're forsaking this truth that we are the temple. Some of you need to have a church service on Monday morning to get your heart directed in the right way. You need to have a time of worship where you greet one another, where you, um, where you pray, where you take prayer requests with yourself and say, what's, what's on my heart today? What can I pray for? Where you open up scripture and you just have a worship service with yourself. May it not be said of us that we identify so closely with the building that the presence of God departs from us the rest of the week. So, we, so, we, so we're looking at Jesus. How, did, how do we find Jesus in the Old Testament? How did all these forefathers point to Jesus? We're going to go through these quickly, so if you want to jot them down, be quick about it. Number one, Abraham and Jesus both left their homelands in faith to follow God's call. You see what Stephen was pointing a picture of? Abraham left one homeland to come to another in faith to receive God. Jesus left the glories of above to come down to earth to be one of us, to be 100% man and God at the same time. And he did so in faith in response to God's call. Abraham, like God was willing to sacrifice his son. You look at the story of Abraham and Isaac, and one day Abraham goes to the mountain at God's uh, insistence. And he says, take up your son with you. I'm asking you to sacrifice this promised son on this mountain. And they go up, and as they go up, Isaac is recorded as asking Abraham, Where, where's the lamb? What are we going to do? We don't have a lamb to make a sacrifice. And 
Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. And what Abraham didn't know in the moment is when he was speaking those words, they were true on multiple levels. Yes, God would provide a lamb for him, for them, but God would provide himself as a lamb for us. We think about Joseph, and Joseph, like Jesus, was betrayed by his own and wrongly accused by others, only to become their savior. We think about Joseph and his brothers, and they rejected him. They sold him. They betrayed him. They uh, wrongly, he was wrongly accused by others. When he was in prison, he was wrongly accused. When he was in Potiphar's house as, as, as Potiphar's uh, aide, Potiphar's wife uh, falsely accused him. And then, in a striking turn of events, he's only, uh, he, he, he leads to being in a position where he becomes his brother's savior during the famine. Uh, also, Joseph, like Jesus, was elevated after suffering. Uh, Joseph, after suffering through a pit, after suffering through uh, being sold as a slave, after suffering through being in prison multiple times, after being uh, suffered, after being wrongly accused, only to become the second uh, in command in all of Egypt. Jesus was elevated after suffering, after being betrayed by his own, after being wrongly accused, only become our savior. And after being beaten, after being wrongly accused, and after being forsaken, he was elevated after that suffering. Joseph also, like Jesus, was put in a tomb and then moved. Joseph was put in a tomb and he made a request that his bones would go into the promised land. And Jesus, of course, was put into a tomb only to be moved into glory. We think about Moses, and Moses, like Jesus, was born and then hidden. We think about the story of Moses, and Moses was born, and then because of a de- declaration in all of Egypt, he was, uh, he was hidden for the first three months of his life, and then he was adopted into Pharaoh's home, and Jesus was born, and then he was hidden. He was, uh, he, they took him away, and uh, when they went into to go do the um, where there was a census, Jesus' life was sought to be eliminated by, the, by Herod at that time. Moses, like Jesus, came down from his royal throne of grace out of care and concern for the people. You think about Moses, and Moses was in Pharaoh's home enjoying the splendors of Pharaoh's kingdom. To be one of them, he was adopted into that family, and yet he saw a Hebrew person being uh, treated uh, unkindly by the Egyptian, and he comes down from his royal throne out of care and concern for his people. Aren't you glad that Jesus came down from his royal throne out of care and con- You see what Stephen is doing here? He's painting this picture that Jesus is greater than anything that the Old Testament had to offer. Uh, Moses, like Jesus, would lead their people out of co- captivity. Moses would lead them to the brink, maybe I should put it more accurately. Uh, He led them out of captivity, of course, uh, when they went on the cusp of being on the promised land. Jesus, of course, leads us out of captivity as well. How about this one? Moses, like Jesus, knew the significance of adoption. Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's family and in that moment, you got to believe for those first 40 years of his life, he knew that there was something different about him, yet he was adopted into this family. 
Jesus, of course, knows the significance of adoption. If you go through the New Testament and look up, every time that word adopted is used, it's in relationship with us being adopted into his family. Moses, like Jesus, saved a nation at Passover. You think about Passover is is so significant to the Israel's history because this is when they became a nation. And of course, Passover is when Jesus died as the Passover lamb. The Last Supper was given or or, uh, instituted during Passover. We think about David, and David, like Jesus, would be the long-awaited king. Here's Stephen's point. Everything leads us to Jesus. Everything leads us to Jesus. I was thinking about how Jesus himself in the New Testament would own the very fulfillment of his life. Um, write down a couple of these verses. Let's go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. It's not on the screen. Um, and you can follow along or look them up or maybe write them down and we'll look at them together. John chapter 8. John chapter 8 um, verse 58, and uh, it's an amazing passage where John is describing uh, some of the things that have happened. Uh, Jesus is about to heal a man born of blind, but uh, at the beginning of John chapter 8, he uh, catches the woman in adultery, and he begins talking about being the light of the world. He talks about him, uh, uh, Abraham, as well, but in John chapter 8 and verse 58, um, actually, I'll, I'll back up. In verse 54, it says this, Jesus said, If I want glory for myself, it doesn't count, but it is my Father who will glorify me. You say he's our God, but you don't even know him. I know him. And if I said otherwise, I'd be as great a liar as you. But I do know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming, and he saw it and it was glad. And the people said this, you're not even 50 years old, Jesus. How can you say you have seen Abraham? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Everything leads us to Jesus. Jesus was saying Abraham was important. He was was the father of this nation. But before he even existed, I am. I've always existed and everything in the course of human history points to me. If we go back to John chapter 6, John chapter 6 in verse Uh, 30 is this amazing story and it's uh, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 right and then afterwards they want more and they begin to follow him from town to town to town and verse 30 we'll pick it up John chapter 6 and verse 30 they said uh, they answered show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you what can you do in other words what can you do for me Uh, many of our people in our world today are saying God what can you do for me show me a sign Um, um, if 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 uh, if 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 you want me to follow you, I need this raise. If you want me to follow you, uh, I need this lottery ticket to pan out. If you want me to follow you, I need this diagnosis to be taken care of. If you want me to follow you, I need this, I need this to happen right now. Show me what we, you can do for me. We approach God like a vending machine and we put our coin in of Sunday morning attendance and then we pick the button of what we expect God to do. This is what was happening. This is show us what you can do. After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. 
Don't you know about the manna, Jesus? Like God took care of our people and he gave us manna from heaven every single day. And when we went out, we took the manna and we ate and, and he took care of us step by step. Jesus, what can you do? The scripture said Moses gave them bread from heaven. And Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, Moses did diddly squat. You should probably read it. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus goes on in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. They were saying, well, Moses did this and Moses did that. And what can you do for us? And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. What Moses provided for you uh, day by day was only a symbol and a foreshadowing of what was to come. I am the bread of life, and whoever is hungry gets to feed of me. You don't have to go out in the morning anymore. I am with you always if you'll just embrace me. We go Psalms 22 in the middle of your Bible. We looked at Abraham, how Jesus spoke about Abraham, how he spoke about Moses. Uh, Psalms chapter 22, uh, when Jesus was on the cross, there's seven statements he made, and maybe one day you should go back and look at those seven statements and just kind of reflect on what he said from the cross. One of the things he did, though, is he quoted David from the, from the cross. Psalms 22, verse 1 says this. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? What Jesus was saying on the cross is, you looked forward to this King David for so long. And when he quoted from David's psalm, it was a signal to the Israel people, I am who you are looking for. I am the Messiah, the Son of God. I am the Christ. You waited generations for me. I am he. Last one, Matthew chapter 5. I love this passage in uh, Acts chapter 7 because oftentimes the Old Testament can appear boring and full of details and full of prophecy that is not relevant for today. And what Stephen does for us is says, man, all of this was set up for us to believe in Jesus. So Matthew chapter 5, this is, uh, this is his first uh, recorded sermon and he begins with the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are, and he begins, he says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is there. God blesses those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Aren't you grateful for that verse? And then the moments where you are hurting and the moments where you are grieving and the moments that you're mourning, uh, we will be comforted. He said, blessed are those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Blessed are those who work for peace, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then he continues for two or three chapters, this sermon on the mount. We get to verse 17. 
And he wants to clarify something for the audience. And perhaps for us. He wants to clarify why he came. Why did Jesus leave the splendor of heaven in order to be one of us? Verse 17, he says this. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the promise, prophets. I came to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture. He's the fulfillment of every promise in Scripture. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the fulfillment of the Torah. So you go back and you look at these accusations against Stephen, and they said, well, you, uh, you're blaspheming against uh, the temple. And Stephen says, God, God can't be confined to a space. He's everywhere. You are the temple of God. You know, you, you're blaspheming against the Torah. And, and, and Stephen says, Jesus is the very fulfillment of everything you're reading. He says, well, you're, you're, blaspheming against, uh, you're blaspheming against Moses. How dare you? Moses, really? And Stephen says, man... Do you see all the similarities between Moses' life and Jesus' life? Moses was an important figure in our history, but he was there to point us to who Jesus is in our life. And they said, well, you're blaspheming against God. And here's the thing, folks. Jesus is God. And so as we, as we rest our hearts in this message, these 50 verses of historical uh, facts, uh, facts from Stephen's mouth on what happened with Israel as a country. I want us to rest right here that everything leads us to Jesus. Every moment of your life has been prescribed for you to be in this moment sitting here watching online, listening to this later so that you could have a come to Jesus moment. Have you ever been in the business world and they'll say, um, I had a meeting with so-and-so, and it was a, it was a come-to-Jesus meeting. And they'll use that phrase as if it's supposed to invoke fear. I, th- I think the most beautiful thing about coming to Jesus is that no matter what you're coming with, you're coming to the Savior of the world. So whatever guilt that you have built up, whatever shame you have built up, whatever ridicule you have built up, and maybe you're like the prodigal son and you're trying to make your way back to Jesus and you're doing this thing where you're like, all right, this is what I got to say when I see Jesus. And that's what the prodigal son did. I'm going to ask him for forgiveness. I don't even want to be a son. I will work. That's what I'll do. That's a good plan. This is, and, and the Bible says that as he made his way home, the prodigal son rehearsed this in his head. I, I just want to say I'm sorry. I screwed up. I no longer deserve to be a son. I just want to be one of your servants. And you're rehearsing the story in your mind like the prodigal son. And what you fail to realize is this, that whenever you come within moments of Jesus seeing you, the Bible says this in Luke chapter 15, that the father ran to meet him. Let me give you a little backstory to that story. It was really important that the father ran because he was telling this story to Jewish people. And what we fail to realize is this, that when the prodigal son left 
and he took his inheritance early and he squandered, squandered it and he partied up and he lost it all, he disowned his family with that act. And in Jewish culture, what would happen is this. If you dishonored your family that way and you took your inheritance early, you were cut off from the family. And there would be a formal ceremony for the people. And what they would do is this. When you left town with your inheritance early and go off to do what you were going to do, they would take these clay pots and they would crush them at their feet as the prodigal son left, signifying that he was cut off. These clay pots are broken and so are you. They're cut up and you are cut off as well. You're no longer welcome. And this is the punishment that would happen for a disowned member of the family to come back into town. Upon seeing them, he would be stoned. Because you cause dishonor once in leaving. Don't you dare come back and cause dishonor again. So I want you to picture this story, and he's telling it to a Jewish audience. And they're like, he did what? He, he disowned his family? He got cut off? He was feeding pigs? He was, he was thinking about eating that? Like the Jewish audience is just, their anxiety levels are out of control. And then Jesus gets to the part where he says, and now the son is on the way home, and and the Jewish audience is like, well, I know how this is going to end. Let's get to the good part. Because they're going to teach him for disowning his family. They're going to teach him for squandering his wealth. They're going to teach him for disgracing his father. Get to the good part, Jesus. And so as Jesus is saying, well, this is a story he rehearses. I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry I disowned you. Uh, I'm coming back. I no longer deserve to be a son. I just want to be a servant. And they're like probably the Jewish audience is getting their fists ready. They are grabbing the nearest thing they can hold to say, yeah, get to the good part, Jesus, where he gets it. And then he says, when the father saw him, great way off he ran to meet his son and what he was trying to get the Jewish people to understand is the father had to run to outrun the crowd because the rest of the crowd was there just to stone him but the father had to go way out in front to say here's the coat I'm going to cover you because you're my son here's the ring I'm going to restore you to a position of authority and here's my sandals. Only family gets sandals. Here's the sandals. So when I put my arm around you and you come back into town, they're going to know you're redeemed, you're restored, and you're back in the family of God. Everything leads us to Jesus and the Father's love for us. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, as we consider the history of Israel, there's so many layers to this story, Lord. And I pray for just a few moments, Lord, we would reflect on the fact that you have led us to this place to meet Jesus. <coughs> Everything in our life points to today and what we make of this story of Jesus. Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac, and Moses, 
Joshua, Joseph, David. Jesus fulfilled all of them and he fulfilled the history of the Torah. He fulfilled the Old Testament in his life. Everything points to Jesus. Father, for those of us who are who are wrestling with where we currently are, and maybe we're in a spot of difficulty with a relationship, maybe we're in a spot of difficulty with our, our finances and we can't see our way out. Maybe we're just in a, a difficult spot with hope in general. Father, may we, may we see Jesus this morning running out to meet us, running past the failures of our past, running past the guilt of our past, running past the shame that we might have accrued. Father, would, you, would we see Jesus this morning? Just like Stephen was trying to paint a very specific picture for this audience, that it's not about our traditions, it's not about this building, it's not about our history, it's about meeting Jesus. And so for us today, Lord, it's not about our history, it's not about where we've been or what we're coming from, but it's about who we're coming to. May today be the day we see Jesus for who he is. Our Father, on this day we celebrate fathers, may we rejoice in the story of the father who welcomes his children back. And so for some of us, that's the journey we need to make today, Lord, as we simply need to say, we're coming home. We're coming home. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you, and have a beautiful day.